Well, God bless you. I'm excited right now that it's time to, that we come to our message. I'm excited to begin a new series on the letter to the Philippians. And uh, Philippians is one of my favorite books. It's kind of a short book, but it's packed with so many great things for Christian living, for building faith, and for being and becoming the body of Christ as Jesus envisions it. Now, I'm really tempted right now to just dive right into the text. But before we do, it's important to get some background information. Because remember the rule of context? It says context rules. So the more that you can understand of the people who were receiving the letter, uh, the days that they lived in, the life they lived, how they came to faith in Jesus, well, the more that you'll be able to understand what the apostle is saying to them and to us in this letter. And as it turns out, There's a description of this church and how it came into being in the book of Acts chapter 16. It gives us some insight into their historical and cultural background, as well as their spiritual formation and journey. So, in this message, we're going to look at that story, and it will serve as a foundation and introduction for our study of the letter that the apostle later wrote to them that we now know as the letter to the Philippians. So, would you bow with me in prayer over this word? Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us, and give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 16, Paul is about to set out on his second traveling journey to proclaim the gospel and establish local bodies of believers. But you see in verses 6 to 8 that the Holy Spirit kept on hindering them from going into many of the places that they had gone before. And then finally, in verse 9, Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia begging them to come and help them. And so when they had crossed the Aegean Sea into Macedonia and into Europe for the first time, the first city that they come to is Philippi. So let's pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 16. It says, From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now, Philippi, it says here, was a Roman colony and the leading city of that district. Now, the Romans would establish uh, Roman cities or colonies in various parts of the empire because they wanted loyal cities spread out across its vast region and territory. So the city was very Roman in its culture and outlook. and It was kind of like a Rome away from Rome, if you will. And so they come to this important city and they begin to proclaim the gospel there. Verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And you know, sometimes sharing your faith begins with the simple, kind act of just talking with someone. I mean, not talking at them, but with them. Hearing them, seeing them the way Jesus sees them. And so they were looking for this place to pray, and they began to talk to the people. Going on in verse 14 and 15, it says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Well, now, all right, this is a good start. They have their first new believers in Jesus, and not only that, they have a place to stay that included a warm bed and home-cooked meals. 
And, you know, I'm not sure what accommodations they had before this, but with four guys backpacking through Europe, I'm not sure it uh, could compare well with what Lydia was now providing for them. So things are going great. People are coming to Christ, and a local body of believers is forming, and they're provided for. And clearly, this is the hand of God's blessing, right? Well, let's go on and see how this unfolds. Verse 16. It says, Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, pause there for a second. When it says, a spirit by which she predicted the future, this phrase is translating two ancient Greek words. The first is pneuma, which means spirit, and the second is pythona, from which we get the word snake or python. And so the idea is a python spirit. But um, the question comes, so where do the translators get the idea that from these two words that she predicted the future? Well, you need to know something about the history and culture of pagan religion of Greece. At the time, it was a common belief in Greece that the false god Apollo had slain a serpent at Delphi, and the original priestess of Delphi, who took the name Pythia, had been possessed by Apollo and was thus able to tell the future. Now, this was a wrong belief, but that was their belief. And it was believed that anyone who was possessed by a python spirit was able to tell the future. And then one more interesting thing about this Greek word, it was also the word that was used to mean ventriloquist. That is, someone who put their voice into something else or someone else. And because demons, they don't want to be seen for what they are. People would just run from them in fear. Instead, they hide behind something familiar so as to deceive people. And so here we have a demon spirit who is using this unwitting girl, putting his voice in hers. Then going on in verse 17, it says, She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Okay, now, what we are seeing here is demonic opposition to the preaching of the gospel. This demon is not trying to be helpful by telling people that these men are servants of the Most High God telling you how to be saved. She was likely mocking them, making fun of them. Think of her tone here as one of derision and laughter as she's saying these things. The devil does not like it when the gospel of the love and grace of the Lord Jesus is proclaimed. The devil wants people in darkness and fear and bondage. The devil is a liar and a murderer who wants precious people to die spiritually away from God. While God, on the other hand, is offering forgiveness and hope and light and life. Going on in verse 18, it says, Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. So Paul put up with this for a while, but finally he got so tired of it that he cast the demon out of the girl. Now, I want you to see everything that is going on here. The young church at Philippi and all those who were watching this received an astonishing demonstration of the power of the risen Jesus through the Holy Spirit living in his followers. This is God saying to the people of Philippi, Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. As Paul would later write to these very same Philippians, the name of Jesus is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
At the name of Jesus, demons bow down and be quiet. You know, and it's kind of like this. I remember when I was in fourth grade, everyone knew that the toughest kid in school was this kid named Dino. Nobody messed with him if you knew what was good for you. But one day, a new kid showed up at school, and his name was Timmy. And I remember being uh, nearby a bunch of other kids uh, who were telling Timmy about Dino and about how much uh, that no one could beat him up, and he was the toughest kid in school. And I remember my jaw dropping as Timmy stood up and asked, where is he? And then the others led him across the playground to Dino, where Timmy promptly went up to him and said, you and me are going to have it out after school. And you know what? They did. And from that day forward, we all knew that Timmy was now the toughest kid in school and we shouldn't mess with him. Well, the devil had bullied and deceived and intimidated these people for some time. And the spirit in this girl had amazed them and impressed many people with how powerful this spirit was. But then one day, Jesus showed up and said, where is he? Can I tell you, Jesus does not run from the devil. The devil runs from Jesus. Whenever they saw him, they would shriek and scream in fear. One time, it says, even many demons all fell before Jesus and begged him to send them into a herd of pigs. And the next day, everyone knew there was a more powerful spirit in town. The risen Jesus, living and expressing himself through the Holy Spirit, living in Paul and Silas and his team, was more powerful than the spirit that was living in that poor girl. Going on in verse 19, it says, When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Okay? So Roman colonies were governed by two magistrates. The cities had a large open marketplace called an agora where a wide variety of activities took place, including commerce and education and philosophy. And legal proceedings took place in this marketplace as well, where these magistrates held an open-air court. And so this is where these men dragged Paul and Silas and began accusing them. But then in verse 22, it adds this strange verse. It says, The crowds joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Now, pause there for a second. Why did these crowds in the marketplace join in this attack? I mean, they didn't see what happened. Most of them likely weren't there when it happened. They hadn't heard the testimony of the girl, and they hadn't even taken the time to hear Paul and Silas's defense. So why jump in like this? Well, it's kind of fairly obvious that this is out of prejudice. I mean, shortly before this incident, the emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews from the city of Rome. And, and Philippi, being a Roman colony, would have easily picked up this flavor of anti-Semitism. Now, notice that the first accusation out of their mouth is, these men are Jews. And notice also that they only grabbed Paul and Silas, who were Jewish. They didn't grab Timothy, whose father was Greek, and they didn't grab Luke, who was also a Gentile. And so the crowds all joined in quickly. Going on in verse 22, it says, And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, now pause there for a second again. Now, Now Paul and Silas are suffering and being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And notice it says here that they were severely beaten. The Jews had a law that said that a person could 
who was being punished could only receive up to 39 lashes. But the Romans had no such law. So when it says they were severely beaten, this was an intense, brutal beating. And I want you to see several things about this beating. First, it was legally unjust. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and as such, they had a right to a public hearing before any punishment. And then also, it was morally unjust in the eyes of God. The magistrates, being man-pleasers, punished innocent men with no inquiry just to satisfy the desires of a mob. And finally, their beating was undeserved. They were not throwing the city into an uproar as their accusers contended. It was the accusers who were throwing things into an uproar over money. All right, now going on, it says, After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, if you can for a minute, try to put yourself in their shoes as if you are in prison with them. Now, we know that this imprisonment would only last for a day, but they didn't know that. To them, there was no end in sight. They were wounded. They were bleeding. No one was taking care of their wounds. They were put in stocks, which were not only an instrument of confinement, but also an instrument of torture. Uh, The prison was probably like a dungeon-like basement with a dirt or mud floor with rats and rodents running around. And and they don't know when or if this will end. They don't know if this is the end of the road for them. Can you see how this could be very depressing and dark? I mean, they had started with such obvious blessing at Lydia's house, with with warm meals and, and a comfortable bed and People were coming to Christ. The gospel was transforming people. And Jesus uh, was triumphant over demons. And the favor of God was so evident. Now where had all that favor gone? Now they were in prison in a hopeless situation. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to the body of Christ? What's going to happen to the work of God in that city? Where has all the favor gone? Can I tell you? The favor of God was right there with them in that cell as they sat there in chains. The same favor and blessing that rested on them in the comfort of Lydia's house now rested on them in prison. And I know that's difficult to see in the natural. It's easy to interpret good times in our lives as the favor of God. And then when difficulties and trials come, it's easy to begin to ask, you know, God, where are you? Have you left me? Have you taken your favor from me? It's easy and even natural to do this. But it's also a mistake for the follower of Jesus. Peter said it this way. He said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Where is God when you are suffering for Jesus? He is resting on you. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so let's follow this in our story. Verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, stop there for a second. Don't rush over this sentence. This is amazing. How can Paul and Silas possibly be praying 
and singing during this time. I mean, first they'd been falsely accused. I mean, right, that right there is enough for, to send some people into a spiritual funk, questioning, where is God in my life? And then they had been severely beaten and denied medical attention. You know, I've seen some people who can't worship God because they've cracked a nail or because someone looked at them sideways. And then they were put into an instrument of torture and left there with no apparent end in sight. And what is their response? They prayed. They sang praises. Literally, it means praying, singing praises. Praying were singing praises. And the idea is that their praises escalated into songs of praise. It's praise in the midst of suffering, and it's powerful. It's not like Paul said, you know, hey, Silas, why don't we try praising God, and maybe he'll send an earthquake to free us. They're just praying and praising God out of love and faith, and that's it. It's not the prayer of self-pity. It's not the prayer of despair. It's not even the prayer of manipulation. It's the kind of prayer and praise that declares the goodness and the rightness of God in the midst of suffering. Can I tell you, my friends, there's something powerful about that. And I know that some of you are probably right now already jumping to the earthquake in the story, but there's something powerful even before that that you need to see. Look at it in verse 25. It says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. When you can sing through trials, people pay attention. It makes them stop and notice. People are more willing to listen. You know, it's easy and natural to praise God and declare His rightness when you're walking in the spring sunshine of earthly blessings and in the cool breeze of fruitful labor and activities. It's quite another thing, an otherworldly kind of thing, to praise God and declare his rightness and goodness in the darkness of a storm when there's no end in sight. It's powerful and it makes people stop and listen. And you know, I've already heard so many stories just from our own church of this happening during this coronavirus challenge. Stories of so many of you who, who are expressing the fruit of the Spirit in the middle of all this. Expressing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And people are asking, you know, how are you doing this? How are you holding it all together? And the opportunity comes to share about the greatness of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you praise God in the midst of suffering, it's powerful and it makes people stop and listen. All right, going on now in verse 26. It says, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. God is mindful of those who are suffering. And look how he responds in this story. Look at everything that's happening here. The earth is quaking. The prison is shaking. Doors are flying open. Chains are falling off. Verse 27, it says, The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. Now, you have to understand, Roman jailers, they were given a lot of latitude in how they treated prisoners. They could be cruel and miserable, or they could be lenient and allow your friends to take care of your needs. But the only rule was that they had to be able to produce a prisoner when they were called for. If not, it was your life for theirs. 
And so this jailer, seeing all the doors open and knowing that his, what his fate would be, is about to take his own life. But Paul calls out in verse 28, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. What amazing grace that is. Paul is concerned for the welfare of the guy who had earlier decided to go on torturing them by putting their feet in stocks. You know, a lot of people would have just let him go through with it. Notice that the rest of the prisoners didn't say anything. I mean, they seemed to be willing to let this jailer just run himself through with his sword. But God offers grace to the worst of sinners. Verse 29 and 30, it says, The jailer called for lights, rushing in and and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the most important question anyone can ever ask God. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so now, as a result of their praise and their faith, unbelievers are more willing to hear and respond to the gospel. What must I do to be saved, he asked. Going on in verse 31 to 34, Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before him. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Well, that's just amazing, isn't it? The body of Christ in Philippi is being added to again. The gospel is spreading again. Though they had been in chains, the gospel was not in chains. Paul even later told these same Philippian believers, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Well, all right, before we conclude, there's one more part of the story that you need to see. Here's the end of the story, verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Now, wait just a second. You mean they're back in jail? I mean, think about it for a minute. I thought God sent an earthquake to bring their chains, uh, to break their chains and open their prison doors and get them out of jail. You know, a lot of the songs that I've heard sung about this and a lot of the teaching that I've heard uh, about this passage kind of gives that idea that God sent this earthquake to release them from jail. But here we see that the, uh, the next morning, where are they? They're back in jail. I mean, what gives here? Well, First, I think it's a kindness of Paul and Silas. If they had hightailed it out of there, it would have left this new believer and his family in danger. It would have cost him his life. And so Paul and Silas go willingly back into jail. What astonishing grace and love towards this family. And so we see here that the earthquake wasn't really even for Paul and Silas. It was for the benefit of this jailer and his family so that they would have the opportunity to hear about the risen Jesus. You know, sometimes when things are shaking around us, it's not for our benefit. It's because God is wanting to wake someone up, get their attention, and give them the opportunity to hear about and experience the grace of the risen Jesus. Verse 37, it says, Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. 
and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, why would Paul respond this way with a demand for a personal escort? I mean, I think this is the only time I've ever heard of someone being released from prison who refused to leave. I mean, so why would he do this? You know, and at first it might seem arrogant or vindictive or like Paul just needs personal vindication, but it's really not because there were good reasons for Paul to use his rights as a Roman citizen and insist on this. First, leaving quietly and sneaking out of town would have left questions in the minds of the citizens of the city. I mean, what crimes were these men guilty of? Why did they leave so quickly? Were they hucksters and swindlers? I mean, these questions would have left the young church in Philippi compromised in its witness and at the mercy of the testimony of the slave owners who had brought charges against Paul. It also would have left them in a weakened position before the civil authorities, the magistrates. It would have cast a cloud of suspicion over the new church. So by insisting on a personal escort from the magistrates, Paul is obtaining a public and formal act that was in essence a declaration of their innocence. So Paul used his rights as a Roman citizen to advantage this new body of believers. And so it's okay when you enjoy rights to use them, sometimes even insist on them, especially when it's to the benefit of the body of Christ. Paul did this, and by doing so, he not only undermined their critics, but gained a more secure place for the church in the community. The magistrates now being aware that should Paul and Silas desire, they could now bring charges against them for the violation of their rights as Roman citizens. Paul wanted to leave this church behind with a strong witness of their own integrity as well as a good testimony for the young church at Philippi. Well, all right, so let's bring this in for a landing now. Here's what I want you to get from all of this as it relates to our study of Philippians. Okay? There's a few things that I just want you to notice about the Philippian body of Christ. First, they heard the word of God and responded. They were people who responded to the word of God and the message of Jesus when Paul brought it to them, even before seeing a miracle. This tells me that their hearts were very much open to the living God. We need to be people of the word of God. I encourage you to be in his word. Let him speak his words of life to you. And then next, they saw and knew the power of the Holy Spirit in the gifts of the Spirit. So when this demon was cast out of the young woman, it was a demonstration for them and for the entire city that this God was more powerful than any other God. And this church, this body of believers, knew that. They knew the power of the risen Christ. And so we also need to be people of the Holy Spirit. People who walk in the Spirit and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit and have faith to be used in the gifts of the Spirit in our world. And so I encourage you to be in much prayer and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, I want you to see about this body of believers that they watch their leaders those who had told them about Jesus endure severe beating for Jesus and for their testimony about Jesus and then get thrown in jail, all the while remaining faithful and integrous towards Jesus and towards the world around them. 
And so they saw the faithfulness of Paul and Silas. Jesus had taught that, blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Then on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they are doing, even as he was being mistreated. And so what Jesus taught as principle and demonstrated in his death, Paul and Silas are now living out in practice as the risen Jesus lives his life through them. May the risen Jesus live out his life through us by the Holy Spirit. So here's how we're going to close our service. If you're not already yet a follower of Jesus, if you really haven't had a relationship with him, here's what he says to you. The Apostle Peter said that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And John tells us that this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. If we're going to be okay with God, you have to come to him in repentance and faith. You have to say to him, you know, God, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I don't mess up, measure up to your standard, but I believe Jesus does and that he's died for me and rose from the dead. And if you find yourself in that place where you are ready to receive Christ as your Savior and follow him and walk with him, I'm going to lead us all in a prayer of faith and repentance and invite you to join with me. So would you all bow right now in your homes and follow me in this prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I confess, I can't save myself. I don't measure up to your standards. I'm a sinner and you're not. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Help me follow you all the days of my life. And help me grow in this relationship with you each and every day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, my friend, if you just did that, can I tell you with the certainty of all the authority of the Word of God, if you prayed that with faith, God has done exactly what you asked Him to do. And we want to help you grow in your relationship with God. Can I encourage you to get in the Word of God? Start with the Gospel of Mark and read a little bit every day. You'll be surprised about how God is speaking to you in ways you never thought that you could hear from God. And then secondly, pray every day. Even if you start with just five or ten minutes, God wants to hear from you. And then thirdly, let us know about it. Go to our website, LancasterFirst.com, and, uh, and uh, go to the Connect card and uh, send us... Um, uh, an email and let us know, or better yet, even uh, maybe put the praying hands emoji right in uh, the chat feature, and uh, we'll contact you online, because we want to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Now, would you all just bow in this short closing prayer? Jesus, thank you for this service and this time together. Bless everyone who's tuned in with your grace and with your favor, for it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.